Genesis chapter 6, excuse me. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the generation of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. And then the phrase where we focus today, Noah walked with God. Over these last several weeks, we have been talking about this matter of Noah walking with God. The very first week, we talked about the wickedness, the wickedness of the day in which he lived. We tried to, or I tried to, make sure you understood the evil that surrounded him on a daily basis, and yet in the midst of that wickedness and in the midst of that evil, Noah walked with God. We can walk with God even in the evil day in which we live. The second message was about the warning. God said, I'm going to send a judgment, and that judgment's going to destroy all of mankind, and only those that are on the ark are going to be saved. You cannot walk with God if you do not know God, and you will not know God if you do not heed the warning, and you do not come to Christ, and you trust in Christ for the gift of eternal life. And we talked extensively about the warning. And then the third week, we talked about the witness. God had left Noah there in that generation to be a witness of his grace and of his righteousness to mankind. There were different ways that Noah went about witnessing, but his presence was a constant presence of, of the presence of God amongst them. They were hearing the message of God. They were being impacted by the message of God and God has left us to be witnesses. Walking with God involves being a witness where we are with the people that are around us. Last week, we talked about the work. God gave him a work. When you're walking with God, God gives you a work to do. There's something greater than just what you have as a bottom line figure, as your profit and loss margin, greater than the properties that you own, is greater than your financial portfolio. And that is a work that he gives to you that he wants to accomplish in you and accomplish through you to do for his glory, for the advancing of the gospel, for the building of his church. There's a work that God wants to do. It may be that he uses your career as the launching pad for the work he wants to accomplish, or it may be something that you've not even considered yet. But God has a work for everyone who is walking with God. But today we talk specifically, the fifth week, the last week, we talk specifically about what it means to walk with God. And I'm going to be doing that in a few moments. I'm going to be explaining to you some of the things that are a part of what it means to walk with God. But before I do that, 
I want to go back for just a moment, and I want to sort of bring some things off of the table that have been on the table that we haven't really considered in great detail, but I want to bring them to your attention before we look at the last and final thought from this particular series of messages. It begins with this very simple understanding. Sin is a real problem. Sin is a real problem. We often treat the symptoms of sin and we don't treat the cause. We don't treat the source. And sin is a real problem. I've been reading these 11 chapters now for weeks Uh, these last several weeks as I've been studying for these messages, and I cannot escape the reality of the effects and the consequences and the outcomes of Adam and Eve's sin. Adam and Eve placed in this beautiful garden, given the right to eat of any, freely to eat of any of the trees of the garden but one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve is tempted. She yields to the temptation. She partakes of that forbidden tree. Adam follows her into sin, and exactly what God said would happen, happened. They died. You understand that death comes in three different ways. Death doesn't mean you cease to exist. Death refers to separation. Instantaneously, there's spiritual death. They were dead spiritually to God. Uh, They, secondly, began the process of physical death, something that's reality for all of us. The older we get, we realize that our mortality even more so. The older we get, physical death. And then there is eternal death, to be separated from, from God forever and forever and forever in the lake of fire. But at that moment, in that day, when Adam partook of that forbidden fruit, Eve partook of the forbidden fruit, what God said would happen actually took place. And sin entered this world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men. Think about the consequences of their sin. It entered, it caused uh, conflict in their relationship. You understand why there are problems in marriages? You say, well, it's just different styles and different ways we were raised and different ways we think. Yeah, but at the core of the problem is simply the matter of sin. We are sinners. And we act selfishly and with self-interest more than we do as people who are like Jesus Christ. And it brings conflict into the relationship. It brought pain. Specifically, it says pain to Eve in the birthing of children. But it would bring pain overall because Adam would now have to work the soil. And the soil would not be nearly as productive or as easy to be productive because there would be weeds and thorns and everything else that would make the cultivating of the ground all that more difficult. And there was pain that was interjected. They were put outside of the garden. They weren't allowed to stay in the garden because, do you know why? If they had been left in the garden, they might have eaten from the tree of life. And had they eaten from the tree of life, they would have been sealed in that sinful state forever. Sealed in that sinful state forever. Think about that. You could not be as we are today, as they were then, set free from these bodies They would have been sealed forever in that condition. And God put them outside of the garden. He puts angels in front of the garden to seal the entrance to that garden so that they cannot get to the tree of life and they will not be sealed in that sinfulness forever. And the process just continues to work its way out. 
You come to chapter 4 and you introduce to Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve. And you see the sinfulness of the parents has worked its way out into the children that have been birthed to them. They were born this way, by the way. They didn't become this way over time. They were born this way, but the evidence of it worked itself out over time. And what happens? The very first murder in the Bible is presented to us. Cain rises up and he kills his brother. And then Cain is punished because of his sin. I mean, what you see working out from the very beginning is the evil, the wickedness, the ungodliness that permeates all of people, all of society, everywhere we go. The real problem in our world is sin. When you get to chapter 5, you read about a genealogy of Seth, the third son that's mentioned from Adam and Eve, the one through whom the promise would ultimately be fulfilled. And there's 10 generations that are mentioned there, but eight of those generations are specifically in chapter 5. It says, and they died, and they died, and they died, and they died, and they died. You know why it says that? It's a reminder that the wages of sin is death. What happened in the garden worked its way out in Cain and Abel, but even in the godly line of Seth, the reality of sin's presence was always there. No matter how long they lived, ultimately they died. They were spiritually dead and had to be saved in order to be right with God. They were going to die physically, and if they were not spiritually saved, they would have been separated from God in an eternal death forever and forever. And it works itself out generation after generation. One man escaped it. His name was Enoch. And then you come to that 10th generation that's Noah. And Noah's living in the most evil day that has existed in history to that time. The intent of people's hearts is wickedness all the time. There's violence in the land. The word violence, used two or three times in Genesis chapter 6, is the Hebrew word Hamas. There's violence in their land. There's demonic activity that's going on. That violence obviously included some kind of death. People were being killed. Their lives were being taken from them. There was that kind of evil and that kind of violence until God sees it again and again. It's been a millennia and a half. The population has exponentially increased. And this kind of evil exists everywhere. And God says, I'm not going to let it go on any longer. Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord, and he's given a work to do to build an ark. He's a preacher of righteousness, but the only people who respond are his wife, his three sons, and their wives. And they're the only eight that are on that ark, other than the animals. They're the only eight that are on that ark. But Noah lived in a day of wickedness and evil. Noah lived in a day filled with ungodliness. And as a result of the flood, God says, I'm going to shorten mankind's life. They were living many centuries. Now they're going to have a, a range of zero to 120. And you watch that as you read through the rest of the, of the obituaries, as you read through the rest of the genealogies, the obituaries too, through the genealogies. I have a funeral tomorrow. That's where, I'm, that's where my mind's going. You, you read through the genealogies and you see this age gap begin to, to, to lessen. I, I read yesterday in the paper. Yeah, we still get the paper. Uh, I read yesterday about a, the oldest woman uh, in America. She just turned 116 years old. Lives in California. She might make it to 120 if she moved out of California. 
116. The oldest who would live would be 120. In essence, you know what God was saying? God was saying, I'm not going to let the evil of mankind work its way out for centuries at a time. 120 is the limit. The flood comes. Everybody is destroyed. All of those who rejected the message refused to get on the ark. They're all destroyed in that flood. All that's left is Noah and his family. And they come off the ark after a little over 365 days. Noah plants, if you will, uh, uh, an olive uh, or a, uh, a grape, uh, what do you call it? Vines, grape vines. Uh, he grows the grapes. He crushes the grapes. He gathers the juice. He waits for it to ferment. He drinks it. And he gets drunk. And he's naked in his tent. Remember the last time you heard the word nakedness? It was back in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned and partook of the forbidden fruit and they recognized they were naked and they were filled with shame over their nakedness. And here is even righteous Noah in his tent naked. Something happens. We're not told exactly what occurs. We have a lot of speculation about it, but nobody knows for, sure, for certain. Something happens and the result is that his son Ham sort of rejoices over the fact that his father is in this less glorious condition and there's a curse that's placed on Canaan, the grandson, the grandson of Noah. And you see the effects of sin just working their way out again and again and again. And what do the two other brothers do? Remember what happens in the garden? In the garden, when they see and know and recognize their nakedness, because now they know good and evil, they recognize their na nakedness. God does what? God takes the life of an animal. The first time a sacrifice has to be made, an animal has to be killed. And he makes coats, at least one animal, maybe more than one animal. He makes coats to cover them. But now here we are after the flood, 1,650 plus years later, Noah's drunk in his tent, uncovered in his tent. And what do his two sons do? They take a covering and they walk backwards and they cover up the nakedness of their father. Unlike Ham who rejoiced in it, the other two sons protected their father's dignity and covered up his nakedness. By, by the way, if there's nothing else that tells you that pornography is wrong, just those two stories alone ought to tell you enough. If there's nothing else that tells you that that kind of immorality is wrong, that being naked, that modesty is, should not be lost, it has been lost too often, but modesty should not be lost, those two stories alone should remind you about the importance of modesty. Then you get to chapter 11. And you know what happens in chapter 11, don't you? The sons of Noah and their wives have reproduced. They're replenishing. The number of people is beginning to multiply again, exponentially beginning to multiply again. And they decide that they don't want to disperse. God said, I want you to disperse. I want you to fill the earth. But they don't want to disperse. They want to stay in one place. They have one language. They want to stay in one place. And they start building this structure that's going to reach to the heavens we're going to get to God on our own. We're going to be God's unto ourselves. What does God have to do? 
God has to come down and God has to confuse their languages so that they have to separate and they have to move across the earth and spread out to the various places on the earth. You say, that's the 11 chapters of Genesis. I mean, when you look at the first 11 chapters of Genesis, yes, there are some incredibly amazing miracles that take place in those chapters. I mean, who can ever get over the creation of God in six literal 24-hour days? Who can ever get over an ark that saves alive all of humanity and all of animal life? I mean, who can get over these incredible things that God does? But amidst those stories, intertwined with all of those stories, is the reality that sin has had a terrible impact on humanity. And may I say, sin still has a terrible impact on humanity. You can't counsel it out. You can't drug it out. I'm talking about prescription drug it out. You may help with some of the symptoms of it, but the reality is until you deal with mankind's sin, you cannot truly help mankind. And until mankind is willing to come face to face with the reality of his sin, you're just dealing with symptoms, you're just dealing with the surface issues, and you're not dealing with the substance of the problem. And those first 11 chapters lay the groundwork that we need a redeemer. We need somebody who can set us free. We need somebody who can forgive our sins. We need somebody who can give us victory. We need the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit who gives us power to be able to live and to produce the fruit of the Spirit. We need that individual, that person, third person of the Trinity living within us, enabling us to live as we ought to live. We have to die to ourselves. Do we tell anybody that anymore? You have to die to yourself as one man said to me recently, I'm battling with same-sex attraction. Okay? What are you going to do with that? Number one, I want to know, are you saved? And number two, I want to know, are you going to die to yourself? That's what I want to know. Are you going to live in the power of the Holy Spirit? Are you going to live in obedience to the Scripture? Are you going to do what God says to do? Are you going to stay away from the things that feed the addiction that you find that you have? Are you going to stay away from those things, or are you going to continue to nurse it and care for it and hold on to your sin? Sin is a terrible problem. Unless we deal with sin, unless churches talk about sin again, we're not going to see people's lives changed by the power of God. It isn't going to happen. We have to be willing to acknowledge it. We have to be willing to recognize it. We have to call it for what it is. And we have to recognize that the only person who can truly set us free from sin is Jesus Christ. And even then, we find sin at work amongst our members, don't we? And we have to walk in the light as he is in the light so that we'll have fellowship one with another. Every day, we're living with a reality that even as believers in Jesus Christ, we are plagued at times by sinful tendencies and sinful propensities. And we have to ask God, oh God, forgive me. Oh God, forgive me. And you keep walking in the light. And as soon as you stop confessing, you walk out of the light and you walk into the darkness. I've got good news for you today. I don't know what binds you, but I want to tell you who has the freedom that you need. It's Jesus. 
It's Jesus. You may need counseling and you may need medications, but more than anything else, what you need is Jesus. Jesus. And if you don't read the first 11 chapters of your Bible and take away the reality that the rest of the book is a book of redemption, about bringing Jesus into the world and bringing redemption to mankind, you have missed what the first 11 chapters are all about. They're about us understanding our desperate need, and we cannot escape it. We inherited it from our first mother and father, Adam and Eve. I've got a few questions to ask Adam and Eve when I get there. Don't you? You say, you think they're going to be in heaven? Absolutely. God sacrificed an animal, made those coats for them, at least one animal, made those coats for them, and covered them because they had put their own works, the leaves, to cover their nakedness. That would never be sufficient. Only what God provides is sufficient. And until we recognize that we are sinners, that's the biggest struggle in 20. Uh, in 21st century Christianity is getting people to acknowledge and recognize I'm a sinner. I am a sinner. I am a sinner. I need a Savior. In those first 11 chapters of the foundation, is it any wonder why the liberals of the theological world today attack the first 11 chapters? Is it any wonder why the secular world doesn't want us to believe the first 11 chapters? Because if he can undermine the foundation of what the real problem is, then you can focus on other things and you can damn people's souls to hell for eternity, forever and forever. Nobody will even know it. I read this passage, these first 11 chapters again and again and again, and I cannot get away from the fact that sin is horrible. Sin in my life or in your life or the lives of others around us is not a good thing. It never turns out good. There's not one time in the 11 chapters that sin ever turns out good. It, it never comes around to say, oh man, I'm so glad I sinned. It always comes back to the reality of the destruction that sin causes. It destroys marriages. It destroys individuals' lives. It destroys people's minds. It destroys all kinds of things. Potential. It destroys potential. We've got to come to recognize we are sinners and we need the Savior. And our greatest need is Jesus so that's one of the things that was on the table. I want to make sure that I drive that home before I finish this series today. Here's the second thing I want you to see that I want to drive home. It's back in chapter 5, verse 22. It's about the man Enoch. I want you to notice something. It says, after he begot Methuselah, that is, Enoch begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God. After, after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God. It says it again in verse 24, and Enoch walked with God. But that didn't come till after he begot Methuselah. I don't know. I don't know what happened at the birth of Methuselah. I know that the name Methuselah means when he is dead, it shall come. 
When he is dead, it, will, it shall come. And he was, in his life, the prophecy, the, the timing of the prophecy of this worldwide destruction of the flood that was going to come, that when you see this man Methuselah die, that means the judgment is on the horizon. It's not far away. But there's something here about this man Methuselah, when he is born to Enoch and his wife, there's something that changes in Enoch, and Enoch begins to walk with God. He walks with God more than 300 years. He walks with God, and then he is not because God takes him. He's the only man that, other than Elijah that doesn't go through the process of death as we know it to go into the presence of the Almighty. But it was after the birth of that son. Now, I know some parents would say, yeah, after the birth of our son... <laughs> Yeah, I needed God more than I ever needed God. After the birth of our daughter, yeah, boy, I needed God more than I ever needed God. I, I think probably there's some of that in what is being said here, but there's more to that. There was something about the birth of Methuselah that was a reminder that he needed God, and he started walking with God. And I, I want to say to every parent and every grandparent, your children need to see a mama and a daddy and a grandmother and a granddaddy who walk with God. They walk with God. You know, it often happens that people come back to church when their children are born. They go to college. They, you know, they sow their wild oats. They go out and live like they want to live. And then they get to a place where they want to get married. Oftentimes, the kids come before the marriage, which is backwards. But the kids come, and now they, they realize, you know, these kids are going to grow up. I, I don't want them to grow up without a church, without s some religious training and some religious teaching. And so i, I got to get them back to the church. And they start coming back to the church. But too often what happens, even in those circumstances, is that the parents are just looking for some religious teaching. They're not really to looking to live before their children what it means to walk with God. But here was the man at the birth of Methuselah, whatever it is that happened that made him recognize, maybe understanding that Methuselah was the timing piece of the coming judgment that God was going to send. But nevertheless, he came to the place of understanding that he had to walk with God. Parents, you've got to walk with God. Moms and dads, granddads and grandmoms, you've got to walk with God. Single mothers, you've got to walk with dad. You've got to walk with dad. You've got to walk with God. My mind is racing a thousand miles a minute. You got to walk with God. Single dads, you got to walk with God. Your children have got to see the reality of God in your life every single day. They got to see that reality. And not just when you're on the mountaintop, they got to see that reality when you're in the deepest valley of life. As a matter of fact, you'll make some more impression on them, maybe more impression than at any other time when you're in the deepest valley and you're still trusting God. I don't know how many times it is true that a young person comes and their life is messed up by something and the parent, usually one parent, not both parents, is deeply concerned for the direction of their child and they bring that child to church. They start showing up to church and I'm glad they do. Thank, thank the Lord that you do. 
You're looking in the right direction, but you don't have both parents involved many times. Sometimes there is just one parent, but you got a child that's deeply concerning to you, and you bring them to the youth department, or you bring them to the children's program, and you want us to be able to save your children. And I want to promise you something. We're going to do everything to reach your child with the love of Jesus Christ and to bring to them the power of the, save, of the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ to their lives and help them to learn to walk as disciples of Jesus Christ, but they will never overcome a mama or a daddy who isn't walking with God and is just playing games with his or her Christianity. They will never overcome it. They will, did you hear my words? They will, there may be a miracle every once in a while. The vast majority will never overcome it. What they desperately need to see, as imperfect as you are, as much as you fail, they need to see the reality and the genuineness of your faith that you walk with God every single day. The birth of this child is a privilege that God has placed in your, ha- in your home to raise up for the glory of God according to the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And I take on that responsibility. And I live before my children in such a way that they see God in me. that I make good choices and right choices, that I do good things and right things because I want to honor God and I want to please God. It is a mountain, it is a Mount Everest kind of a problem to get over when you're trying to reach a young person or a child and the parents have little interest. And may I just stop here. For those of you that are, have their husbands and wives in the family, it is almost completely impossible when daddy doesn't lead the way. It's not totally impossible, but it's almost completely impossible. Daddy, your spirituality, you may be playing games with it. You may be showing up on Sundays and acting as if you're a Christian and living something else on Monday through Saturday, but I want to remind you, it is almost impossible to overcome the influence of a father in the home who takes spirituality and the things of God as something that's sort of down the priority list. The children that are most impacted are the children that are impacted by parents, mother and father, and especially dads, who place spiritual matters at the top of every decision they make. How does this please God? How will God use this? How can I be a witness in this for the glory of God? How can I serve the Lord in my church and still be able to do these things? How can I reach people with God's love? How can I share the love? How can I be a disciple of Jesus and, and live before my children and them see in the good times and the bad times, they can see the reality of my relationship to God? How many times will they see me with my Bible open reading? How many times will they see me on my knees, if you can kneel, or your head's bowed, at least sitting on the, on the couch? How many times will they see you praying? How many times will they hear you, dads, praying for them? I'm talking about out loud. So I just can't pray out loud. You talk about football and baseball and golf and every other imaginable thing to sometimes complete strangers, and you can't talk to God? Don't give me that excuse. We get on our faces, dads, and we 
pray for our children and we get up off our knees and we live out our faith after Methuselah was born, after Methuselah was born, Enoch walked with God. He walked with God. He walked with God. He walked with God. He wanted his children, he wanted his children to see the reality of his faith with God. And can you imagine how much easier it was when suddenly he's missing for them to say, we know where he is? He's with God. Are you still with me? I'm just preaching at this point. I'm not teaching, I'm just preaching. Sin never has good outcomes. We should walk with God before our children and let our children see the reality of our faith. But here we come. What does it mean to walk with God? What does it mean for us to have a walk with God? And I'm going to be honest with you, for the last five weeks, as I've prepared these messages and read these 11 chapters in this specific, specific section of chapter 6 over and over and over again, I've wrestled with what to tell you. And the reason I have wrestled with it is this. People come to church and they want a formula. I want two parts of this and three parts of that, a quart of this and a gallon of that. Tell me what the formula is. This is less about your actions. This is more about your attitude. Walking with God at this moment in this message is less about your actions and it's more about your attitude. I've said it once before in this series, so let me say it again. You are as close to God as you want to be. James says, draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. You have to draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. You are as close to God as you want to be. So what I'm about to tell you is not so much about our actions. Well, if you do two parts of this and three parts of that, and you get a quart of that and a gallon of that, then what you're going to have is a walk with God. we got it all put together, a little package. We're going to put a little bow on it. We're going to walk out of here. We're going to apportion our time. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to give him this much time for this and this much time for that and this much time for this and this much time. Then that's done. Check it off, check it off, check it off, check it off. I've done it. I don't believe that's what it means when he talks about walking with God. It starts not with your actions, it starts with your attitude. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. After he finds grace, you see him living out his life as a just man, perfect, mature, blameless in his generation. And his whole spirit and his whole attitude was, I'm going to walk with God. The reality is I can give you the specifics of how you can go about walking with God. I can give you two parts of this and three parts of that. And the reality is you can do those things and still not walk with God. When we talk about walking with God, we're talking about spending time with him, setting aside that daily time for prayer and Bible reading and worship. We're talking about surrendering your will to his will, submitting yourselves to his plans for your life, seeking his guidance and aligning your life with his purposes. We're talking about being obedient to what he commands. It was Jesus who said, if you love me, keep my commandments. We're talking about trusting him on a daily basis. 
resting in him and relying on him to help us and be with us in every circumstances of life. We're talking about relying on his grace because we all fail at times. And we rely on his grace for forgiveness and mercy, and we rely on his grace for strength. We're talking about cultivating the spirit of gratitude. Walking with God involves a spirit of gratitude. Some people haven't walked with God. You know they're not walking with God because all they do is complain. Should I pursue that one? It is to cultivate the spirit of gratitude. It's to stay connected in a church body and surround yourself with fellow believers that can encourage you and challenge you and support you and not look for a preacher that's just going to stroke your ego and send you home. But understands that the preaching of the word is to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. All of those things are part of what it means to walk with God. But none of those things can be done as if it's a formula. It becomes an attitude, a desire of your heart. I love what Hebrews 11.6. Turn back there real quickly for a moment. Hebrews 11.6. Listen to what he says. Hebrews is the great chapter of the saints of God that believed God. Some of them received the promises of God. They see the fulfillment of those promises. Others didn't receive the fulfillment of those promises, but they kept on following God. But notice verse 6, if you will. He says, but without faith, it's impossible to please him. By the way, walking with God means I want to please him. It's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is. Do you believe that God is? You must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who, here it is, here's the attitude. It's not a formula. Those who diligently seek him. Those who diligently seek him. Some of you know everything that's going to happen this evening for the Super Bowl game. You know the players' names. You know their stats. You know there's going to be one famous singer up in the boxes watching the game because her favorite player is on one of the teams. You know how much it cost over $7,000 to buy a ticket as of a week or so ago, to that game. You know the odds, the betting odds. I hope you're not betting, but you, you know the betting odds on who's going to win the game. But you slink into church services. And your Bible sits with dust hardly read. And it never gets worked through your life. I mean, this sure into you and through your life. It never gets worked through your life on a consistent basis. You show up, you check off the boxes, but what's missing is the diligence to seek God. The diligence to seek God. It might mean giving up a round of golf. For a golfer, that's a big deal. It might mean giving up something that your children desperately want to do, but you know it's more important that you teach them to seek God. It's an attitude before it's an action. It's an attitude that says, 
Lord, you are the priority of my life. You are the preeminent one of my life. I want to know you. I want to walk with you. I don't want to have fellowship with you. I want you to know I love you. I want to experience your love in return. You understand when you walk with God, there's transformation of life. There's guidance that God gives. There's peace that comes as a result. There's comfort. When you're struggling, there's strength. There's fellowship that's created you got to walk with God, but you'll never walk with God following a formula. You'll only walk with God when there's a spirit of diligence to seek God above everything else in your life. Turn with me to John 15. There's a New Testament word for this. Walking with God, there's a New Testament word for this. Are you ready for it? See if you can pick it out. Chapter 15, verse 1. What is the New Testament word for walking with God? Verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are always clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not Abide in me. He is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandment, you will. Abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Ten times. He says, You've got to abide, you've got to abide, you've got to abide, you've got to abide, you've got to abide. Two more times later in the chapter, the same, ver- the, same, uh, the, the same verb is translated remain. Two more times it says remain. But the, eight, the ten times it says abide, 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 abide. What does it mean to walk with God? It means that you abide. In God, and you abide in His Word, and His Word abides in you. Do you know what that means? To abide means to feel at home with. When I come to your house, and I love when you invite me to your house, me and Mary, we don't get very many invitations. We don't get very many invitations. A lot of invitations to go out. Not a lot lot of invitations to people's houses. But when I go to your house, I don't abide in your house. I sit where I'm told to sit. I eat what I'm told to eat. We have to eat when we're coming to your house. (laughs) I eat what you tell me to eat. I go where you tell me I can go. I don't really have liberty in your house. I don't pick things up off the table and say, ooh, that isn't that beautiful because as sure as the world, I'll drop it and I'll break it and I'll have to buy you another one. 
I'm careful about where I park my car. I don't want to park on your grass. I don't want to park in your driveway. I park out on the street. I don't want to block anybody. I don't want to make it where you can't get out or your children can't get in. I don't abide at your house. Let me tell you something. When I go to my house, all rules are gone. (laughs) Take my shoes off. Take my coat off. Well, let's stop there. I just get comfortable. I abide at my house. God wants us to come and abide in him. Where we're at home in his presence. And he has that same kind of liberty in our presence through his word. We abide in him. Church, this is not, walking with God is not about a formula. Walking with God is about an attitude. An attitude that says there is nothing and no one else in all of this universe more important than God is to me. And his son is to me. And his spirit who indwells me. And I will live every moment of every day with the reality of his presence with me. Let me just give you four thoughts quickly. Number one, intentionally choose to seek him daily. Intentionally choose to seek him daily. Number two, aspire to be like him in all your ways. These aren't going to be on the screen. Aspire to be like him in all your ways. Number three, recognize his presence in everything you do. Every moment of every day, Lord, you're here. You're with me. You never leave me. You never forsake me. You talk about him when you get up in the morning and in the middle of the day when you go to bed at night. You talk about him with your children when they get up in the morning, when they go through the day, when they go to bed at night. You recognize the his presence in everything that you do. And number four, you cultivate an attitude of gratitude. Cultivate an attitude of gratitude with him. Lord, this is really hard. I'm really uncomfortable in the circumstances that I'm in, but I want to tell you, Lord, I know that you are here with me, and I am so grateful that you are my God and that you have a purpose and a reason and a meaning in all that I'm going through in this life. Lord, I don't understand why I have to deal with what I have to deal with, but I understand that you have a reason and a purpose for it. And in weakness, Lord, you are made strong. An attitude of gratitude in him. Stop worrying about a formula. Start diagnosing the attitude. Are you seeking him diligently? Are you abiding in him like a branch abides in the vine are you abiding in him in his word abiding in you is there a passion in your heart for God and for the things of God and for the word of God is there a passion in your heart and if there's not we need to get right with God I'll not tell you her name she and her husband were members of our church for many, many years. I watched them daily. I mean, all the times that I saw them, I watched them. They had a walk with God that was unlike anybody else I'd ever known. Every moment of every day, they seemed to live as if the presence of God was always with them and everywhere. They recognized when they were in a restaurant, I'm not just in a restaurant, I brought the Lord with me in this restaurant. 
I'm not just at this party. The Lord is with me in this party. Is this where I should be? Is this where the Lord would want to be? They, they live their lives with that kind of a sense of the reality of the presence of God. I watched it over and over. They invited Mary and I on a number of occasions to their house. Many times it was with missionaries to come over and to sit in their house. And we sat at their house on a number of, a number of times, had a delicious meal. And there was a place in their house where there was a table and there were two chairs, not reclining chairs, but they were comfortable chairs. They weren't straight back chairs. They were comfortable looking chairs. I always admired those chairs. I, I think I knew I had, they had Bibles, that both of their Bibles lay on the table right next to it with a lamp. They, they laid right there on the table. They had some other devotional books that laid on that table, not many. A couple laid on that table. And I, I would go to the house. Mary and I would go to the house. We'd sit down. We'd be entertained and treated so wonderfully. We'd be able to bless our missionaries by their presence. We had such incredibly encouraging conversations about the things of God, but I watched them every day, every day, every day. Whenever I saw them, there, there was a uniqueness. He worked in the school system. She was a school teacher, had been, was retired, but had been a school teacher. One day I went to their house and I just asked her, I, I said, can you tell me about that table and those two chairs? I said, I think I know what those are. I'd just like you to tell me, what, what are those? And I, I didn't ask it that way. That, I had a little more tact than that. And, I mean, I wasn't born yesterday. And she and her husband went on to tell me that that's where we go to meet with God. Every morning at such and such time, we go sit in those chairs. We read the Bible separately. We read the Bible together. We pray separately. We pray together before we do anything else for the rest of the day. I'm talking about somebody who was a school teacher, retired now, still living, she's living, he's not. That's where we meet with God. You could see the presence of God in their lives. It wasn't about a formula. I've got to spend 10 minutes in that chair. I've got to spend six minutes on my knees. I've got to spend five minutes... It wasn't about a formula. It was about an attitude that said there is nothing more important in my life than my walk with God. And I am going to prioritize it. I'm going to make it first place. I'm not going to let anything challenge it. I am going to abide in the Lord.